Thank you for joining us for story time with Jesus as we kick off our summer together at Restoration Church. Uh, there are cards that look just like this. You, you may have received one uh, as you walked in. It's an invitation card. It has our fun little image of Jesus reading a storybook to little children. Uh, it was a funny process when I had to make this image. I had to actually give Jesus four extra fingers there, so it was kind of fun to, to give Jesus a hand right there. But um, there's fun stuff on the back as well. If you guys are interested in what's going on this summer, there's a helpful list. Uh, for instance, walking tacos today after the service, as Emily had already mentioned. But, uh, so I'd encourage you to take this, put it on your fridge, but then in, also invite someone to join you this summer as we talk about uh, various stories here at Restoration Church the stories that Jesus tells us. As the bumper video had just told, we live in a storytelling culture, don't we? I mean, not only that, we are actually a storytelling people. Humanity is a storytelling race. We tell stories all the time. We are embedded in stories all the time. We are constantly inundated with story. I mean, how many of you, when your kids, for those of you who have kids, how many of you, when your kids get home from school, what's the first thing you ask them? How did your day go? And you usually get good. Fine. It's about it, right? But what you're asking is for them to tell you a story. Tell me a story of something that happened today. Tell me a story of an experience you had. Let me enter into your experience. Let me, into, let me enter into what you did today so that I can participate in your story, in your life. You're hoping to get an answer out of these children, but they never just respond with stories. They always just simply say, good, I wish they'd say more. Because then we could enter into each other's stories. We could share each other's lives in more meaningful ways. How many of you are on Facebook or Instagram? Isn't that kind of the whole purpose of some of these social platforms that we get to enter into each other's stories? We get to hear about what each other are doing throughout our days. Instagram and Facebook actually have a component called stories. Your story. Here is my story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take videos and, and pictures and I'm going to put them on my story so that you can enter into what I'm doing throughout my day so that my life can be shared with your life and your life can be shared with my life and we can enter into each other's stories. Stories are as commonplace in our culture and language as any other form of communication. We are constantly sharing stories and not only that, stories occupy so much of our time and attention, our energy, our money in ways that we can't even fathom. Stories are everywhere, and they're inundating our lives. We don't even recognize this, that when we're listening to songs, most of the songs that we are listening to are stories being told. And so how many of you uh, think of the last song that you heard? Maybe it was on your way to church this morning, or maybe it was a song that you sung this morning, right? We are constantly singing stories. How many of you guys, when you ride in the car, are constantly listening to music? Or doing work around the house, you have earphones in? Or, man, we listen to stories constantly through the songs that we sing. And this is a pretty minor, actually, example of the stories that we listen to. The video game industry, for instance, is the biggest media industry in the world. It's bigger than Hollywood, it's bigger than television, it's bigger than anything. The video game industry is the biggest video um, industry in the world. And really, what a video game is, is your opportunity to enter into a story, to participate as a character in a story. You know, it used to be the case that we would sit with our elders... And they would tell us stories about how they grew up and what they did as children. And they would tell us stories about how they walked up, you know, a hill both ways to school and 10 feet of snow. And they'd share these stories with us. And, and somehow these stories transcend all of humanity, right? And we're actually tapping into the human, the, the, the beauty and the richness and the tapestry of human history. And we've kind of lost that in some ways because our common stories today take place on television screens. 
or on movie theater screens, you know, as we participate in video games or we watch movies. We've kind of lost some of the, the beauty of the storyteller because we are inundated now with the stories that media wants us to be inundated with. We enter into the stories that the video game industry tells us that we should enter into. We enter into the stories that the, that the, that the Hollywood, Hollywood and the television industries tell us that we ought to enter into. And this can be, you know, beneficial in some regards. There are a lot of beautiful stories out there, but can be really terrible and wasteful and terrifying at the same time. You know, studies have shown that video game addiction is a very real thing. Television addiction is a very real thing. In fact, the the brain um, produces the same chemicals as it does when you're in front of a video game, as it does when you're on cocaine. That's a scary thing to think about when our kids are just, you know, binging, you know, hours and hours and hours of television or or video games. If you look at the FBI's list of common descriptors for mass shooters, the most obvious one is a heavy and regular, consistent, consistent and regular. Kind of breaks your heart, doesn't it, a little bit? That we, we allow kids to go on television screens and, and take automatic weapons into their hands and kill any random amount of people that they want. They actually get scored and they get points for killing as many people as they want in a lot of these games. And then we tell them not to go into schools and do the same thing. There was a story, maybe some of you remember this, about four years ago when a little boy at the age of eight, he, um, he turned off a game called Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto is one of those games where you get points for killing people and stealing cars and raping prostitutes and doing drugs and doing all the great things our, our little eight-year-olds, you know, should be participating in. And what does he do? He turns the video game off. He, he goes to his grandma, who is his caretaker. He takes a, a pistol off for a nightstand, and he shoots her in the head. Terrifying. What stories have the power to do, isn't it? As we enter into stories, it's terrifying about the power that they can have over us. Well, the most common form of storytelling in our culture even though it's not the most profitable, is the movie, is the television screen. I mean, when was the last time you laughed out loud? I bet it was during the context of stories. Someone was telling you a story, or you were watching a story, or you were involved in a story. When was the last time that you sat on the edge of your seat in fright because you were anticipating, you had no idea what was coming next? It was probably in the context of a story. When was the last time that a story made you cry? Last time a story made me cry, I hid this very well from Emily because she was sitting right next to me and I didn't want to you know, sound like a, yeah. Um, it was during the, the Greatest Showman, actually, you know, like I just got so emotional during this movie. It was like so, I, 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 just, I just saw the, the people who are just outcasts in their society and, and this man comes and he provides them acceptance and a home and unconditional worth. It wasn't unconditional, by the way. He provided them a lot of money in the process, but um, he, got, he gave them a home, and in the end, they became a family. And I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. Uh, oh, and I hid it from Emily. You know, I, 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 I sneezed and coughed. And, of course, I wasn't crying and tearing up. But it was, it, was, it was powerful. You know, it's powerful stuff. But isn't it true that stories can sometimes confuse you? When was the last time a story just utterly confused you? Every day? Okay, yeah. Four-year-old talks? Oh, sure, man. They ramble on about the... I saw, I saw a meme this week said, you know, 89 minutes later, my son is still talking about the leaf that blew through the parking lot. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, confused, right? But for me, for me the, the last time I think Emily and I were collectively confused after watching a movie was with the movie Downsizing. You guys ever seen this movie, Matt Damon? 
he becomes a five-inch tall man. We thought it was going to be a comedy, you know? We thought this was going to be funny. And it ends up being like this, this really dark commentary on American society. <laughs> and, uh, and we were just totally, utterly confused by it. We, we think there was a lesson to be learned in the, in the sense where, you know, he, he has a choice to make in the end. You totally forget that he's even shrunk to five inches by the end of the movie. Um, he, he leaves this life of mediocrity for this life that was supposed to be completely luxurious. And in the end, he realizes that even poverty exists in the downsized world where there was supposed to be no poverty. Even poverty exists there. There's still racial lines that need to be broken down there. There's still racism and, and uh, impoverty and injustice going on. And so he has this choice to make. You know, is he going to live in, in the luxury that's provided him or he's gonna, is he going to continue to enter into the injustices that he sees? Uh, it took a lot of mining to get to that point and trying to figure out if that's even what that movie was about. I have an entirely no idea what that movie was supposed to be about. But in the end, he has this choice to make. Is he going to abandon uh, you know, everybody else and go to this little utopia that he finds or is he going to go back and to live in, into the poverty? But kind of that invitation component, you know, it's like you, you, have, a, you have a choice to make in the end and, and the story kind of invites you into making that story as well because isn't that true of our society? There's always injustices. There's always racial lines that could be broken down. There's always things that could be done and we all have a choice to make. Isn't that really the power of a story? Is that you don't just enter into it, but it actually begins to form your decisions and change your behavior and you have choices to make as you walk away from this? I think that's the power of a story. And the only reason I was able to deduce, uh, you know, s- maybe a valuable lesson from that movie was because I stayed engaged to it. I stayed engaged to the movie as like, as, as so oftentimes we're like, do we want to shut this off? Like, is this really worth our time? Like, it was kind of weird and um, we stayed engaged. We stayed engaged and maybe in the end we learned something about it. But have you ever been watching a movie or a television show and, and the first instance of boredom, what happens? change the channel, or you bust out your phone, start playing a game, go to another screen, you disengage from one story to enter into another story. Have you ever walked away from a television show to get a drink, and you went to the bathroom during a movie, and you came back, and you're just utterly confused? You missed 10 minutes of the movie, and somehow you missed a plot line, and you walk back, and it's like you disengage for a little while, and you end up being completely, utterly confused. Stories demand our attention, don't they? Stories demand our attention if they are to be understood and entered into. And isn't that really the power of the story, that we can enter into the story, that we can be transformed into the characters of the story, that we can actually get lost and we can lost ourselves as we enter into the characters and we become the characters of the story? You guys ever experienced that before? You're reading a really good book and you don't want to put it down because you actually feel invested in the characters? You actually feel like almost that you've become the character in the story? Uh, you're worried for the sake of the characters. If you guys ever seen the movie The Neverending Story, uh, great classic, man. In the 1983, this movie was produced, and Bastion is is getting beat up by bullies, and so he's running down an alleyway, and he and he ducks into a bookstore to find cover. And while he's there, he runs into the the owner of the bookstore, and he sees the book that the owner is reading. He says, "Well, what's that about? What's that book about?" "Oh, this," the bookstore owner says. He says, "This is something special." "Well, what is it?" Look, he says, your books are safe. By reading them, you get to become Tarzan or Robinson Crusoe. But that's what I like about them, Sebastian says. Ah, but afterwards, you get to be a little boy again. Well, what do you mean? Well, well, listen, have you ever been Captain Nemo trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid is attacking you? Yes. 
Weren't you afraid that you couldn't escape? But it's just a story. That's what I'm talking about. The ones you read are safe, and this one isn't. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, kid. Are the books you're reading safe? Are the stories you're watching safe? Are they going to invest, demand something of you? Are they going to demand your investment? Are they going to demand that you get sucked into them and pulled into them and perhaps be changed by them? Stories demand, in some respect, that we enter into them. They do not permit us to remain outside observers. If they do, we get bored, we get disengaged, we shut them off, we turn the channel, we go do something else. If we are not sucked into the life of the story, we go find something else to do with our time. And a parable, the thing that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks here at Restoration, broadly speaking, is a story. That's what a, that's what a parable is. It's a story, but it's not a story with a particular moral, but rather a story with an invitation. These stories invite Jesus' audience, which is now us, into a vision for God's kingdom These aren't so much about timeless truths as they are about something that is happening. And with that, each person listening, if we care to listen, we have a choice to make at the end of each parable. We have a choice to make. Are we going to enter in? Are we going to be changed by what we just heard? Are we going to disengage? Are we going to be bored? Are we going to walk away? Are we going to say, it's not for me, Jesus? I don't want to enter into this invitation that you're offering me and holding out before me. I'm going to abandon it. I'm going to walk away. So just after Jesus tells his very first parable, the, the, the disciples come to him and they says, Jesus, what are you doing this for? What, what are you talking to us in parables for? Don't you just want to make it clear, Jesus? Why do you speak to the people in parables? Why, why, can't you just make it clear? Can't you just make it simple? Why are you doing this? What's the value of these stories, Jesus? It seems kind of like you're just muddying the whole water thing. This is why I speak to them in parables, he continues. Though seeing, they don't see. And though hearing, they don't hear, they don't understand. You know, they're, they're here, but they're distracted. You know, like I'm looking around this crowd that I have gathered here by the Lake of Galilee, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, and people are just kind of secretly pulling out their phones, and they're checking the sports score. You know, they're, they're here, but they're not really engaged. They're here, but they're not really listening. They're here because, you know, they think I'm going to do something really neat and cool, but they don't really care to hear what I have to say. They're here, but they're not really engaged in what I'm saying. I want them to wrestle and process and struggle with what I'm saying. I want people who are interested and willing to enter into a great narrative, a narrative that goes beyond themselves. I am inviting them into something beautiful and grand. I want people who are willing to get risky and unsafe and to enter into something bigger than themselves. But everyone's got an idea what I'm, what I'm supposed to be up to. As the Messiah, everyone's got an expectation of what I'm supposed to be doing. Everyone thinks that to bring about the kingdom of heaven, all you have to do is declare it's arrived, uh, declare it's arrived raise up a military, you know, put your armor on, mount your horse, go to war, and, and make it happen. Go fight the oppressive armies that are, that are against you, and the kingdom of God will be here. That's what people think. That's all you have to do to make it happen. And so as the Messiah, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to mount my horse. I'm supposed to put my armor on. I'm supposed to get my scepter in my hand and, and, and go to war. That's what people are expecting of me. But I'm speaking to you in parables because I want you to wrestle with a different image of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to wrestle with something different. I want to wrestle with what I'm really actually about. I want to help you develop a new version of your Messiah and of your King. 
But here's the thing. Most people, they're just not going to hum- humble themselves. and They're not going to stick around to see what I have to say. When, when, they, when they understand, when they finally get that, that I'm not the king that they are looking for, that I'm not going to mount my horse and go to war, then they're probably going to disengage. They're probably going to leave. They're probably going to abandon me. Most people will not humble themselves enough to accept this vision. So, you know what I'm doing with these parables? I'm weeding out the people who don't care. I'm weeding out the people who aren't interested. I'm weeding out the people who would rather be doing something else. But the people who want to wrestle with what I'm saying, who want, to, who want to enter into the mystery and enter into these stories and become a participant in the stories, then they, they will see the kingdom of heaven. And, and really, guys, come on, this is nothing new. He quotes, he continues by quoting Isaiah. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, he continues. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. He's quoting Isaiah 6. And the Israel Isaiah knew back 700 years prior to Jesus was hard-hearted. They were obstinate. They were a wicked, wicked people. And here is a description of judgment that will fall upon the land. But like every other description of judgment, it is always preceded by a promise. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, right? That's a, that's a promise of judgment, right? Judgment is coming upon the people of Israel. The, the trees are going to be cut down. When they are cut down, so then you will be revealed a holy seed that will be underneath the stump in the land. Under the tree that is, co- that is going to be cut down, under that tree that needs to be cut down, under the judgment, there's new life. And, and what is this new life? It's a holy seed. And so one day, Isaiah is saying, many, many years from now, a new seed will begin to sprout up. A new seed will begin to sprout up. A new shoot, a new tree would arise, bringing mercy on the other side of judgment. And so what does Jesus do? He begins to tell a bunch of stories about seeds. And the context of this, of this promise that, yes, in the midst of judgment, a new tree will be brought up from a holy seed. He begins to tell a bunch of stories about seeds. To help his listeners understand that when the kingdom of heaven does in fact arrive, it will bring with it both judgment and mercy. Yes, they'd say, judgment on our oppressors. Judgment on our enemies and mercy towards the people of Israel. And Jesus says, all right, guys, slow down. Slow down, all right? You're, rush, you're rushing ahead of things. Remember, the expectation that you have for me, the, the picture that you've already painted of what your Messiah was supposed to be like, slow it down. Let me tell you some stories, all right? See, part of the judgment will fall upon those who are disengaged and not caring and too hard-hearted to listen. Judgment is going to fall on those who do not want to enter in and draw near, but certainly part of the point is that Jesus is going to go ahead of his people and he's going to take the brunt of the judgment upon himself. And it's this mystery, right? The, the, the mystery that, that the people thought Jesus ought to be a certain type of Messiah who was going to ride a white horse into battle and, and, and deliver the, the Israelites from the oppression of the Romans. They had this expectation, but the kind of life that he actually lived didn't match up to that. Certainly the life that he was going to end through the cross, 
through the resurrection. None of this was what people were expecting. And so his whole life is a living parable. And that is in part why he speaks in parable to his people. Because it's not just his words that the people weren't understanding. It was his entire ministry that the people weren't understanding. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is introducing through his sacrificial love, absorbing God's judgment and ushering a new life and new people is simply not what anyone was expecting. And so they didn't understand his stories. Of course they didn't understand his life. Everything that he did, they did not understand. But he wanted people to remain engaged, to keep their eyes open, to keep their ears open to what he was doing and to what he was saying. And to help them understand exactly what he was doing and exactly what the kingdom of God looked like under his regime, under his kingship, he tells them some stories about seeds. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like, oh Jesus, we know the answer to that. Of course, Jesus, we know the answer. We've said this already. The kingdom of heaven is like a king sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hand with his enemies under his feet. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The oppressive Romans need to go away. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus, you are that king, so raise up your army. And Jesus would say, guys, slow down. Let me finish. Let me talk, right? Certainly the kingdom of heaven is about God's reign, yes, and rule, yes, but you all are, you all are very utterly confused by what that means. No, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like, it's like a man who sowed good seed in a field. Wait, 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 Jesus, come on, wait, wait, good seed in the field, come on, man, that's not power, that's not, that's not an army, that's not significant, a seed in the field, come on, that's like the most insignificant thing you could think of, the kingdom of heaven should come with power, with strength, and you're talking about the kingdom of heaven being a seed, I mean, seeds are tiny, they're minuscule, they're meaningless seeds, come on, Jesus, Plus, Jesus, do you know how long it takes for a seed to actually do anything of meaning? It sits in the ground dormant until what? It starts to pop out as a little shrub? A little rabbit could come and pluck that thing out of the ground. That's the kingdom of heaven? That's really what you want us to know about the kingdom of heaven? A seed? Are you telling us that you didn't call us here to raise up an army, Jesus? That we're not standing on the shore as your army? Is that what you're trying to say, Jesus? I mean, Jesus, you got to understand the pain and the agony that we feel by the oppression of the Romans, right? Like we're crying out to God day and night, do something about the oppression that we feel. When is it going to end? How is it going to end? Isn't the kingdom of heaven about this? About liberating the oppression of your people and putting a rightful king in its place? Your reign, Jesus, what is it about? And if you're going to reign, if you're going to be king, then doesn't that imply war? I mean, why are you being so obstinate, Jesus? You know, there's, there's all this oppression in front of you. There's so much pain being experienced. There's so many injustices and bad things happening. And you're just sitting there telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like a seed? I, just, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. You can feel the tension, right? If you're a person listening to the story, you would just be infuriated that Jesus is calling the kingdom of heaven a seed. That is... That is comparing it to a seed in a field there was great confusion that went over jesus's audience and doesn't this confuse us too a little bit it confuses us too right i mean we we look at the world and we see all the tragedies taking place we see the oppression still taking place we see the injustices we see the tirades we see the terrorists 
And that's on the worldly scale, right? We see the tsunamis, we see the earthquakes, we see the tornadoes, we see the things that ravish the world. And bring it down a step, right? We see the horrors in our own neighborhoods. We see the horrors in our own household. We look in the mirror sometimes and we see the, the horrors looking back at us. We see it all. We see the oppression. We feel it. Jesus, what are you doing about it? Are you just obstinate? Are you just slow? What do you mean the kingdom of heaven is like a seed? What are you going to do about this, Jesus? So from the extreme to the seemingly insignificant, we wonder where God is in all of this. When is God going to set all this straight? When is the kingdom of heaven actually going to manifest itself and actually do something about all the oppression and the injustices we see in the world? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why don't you just step up to stop it? Why are you so slow, God? You guys ever ask those questions? In the face of a tragedy that you've experienced? You guys ever ask those questions to God before? No, but I wonder, you know, w- would people really like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately? I mean, th- just think, think about this for a minute. Would, would people really honestly like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately? So that every single thought and action were weighed and instantly judged and if necessary punished in the scales of God's absolute holiness? Doesn't that just frighten you just a little bit? If the price of God stepping in and stopping a Stopping a campaign of genocide were that he would also have to rebuke and restrain every other evil impulse, including those that we still know and that we still cherish. Would we all be prepared to pay that price? If we ask God to act on special occasions, do we really suppose that he could do that simply when we wanted him to and then back off for the rest of the time? I mean, act towards all the other people, God, but leave, leave me be, please. You know, yes, go, go into the world, God, and rid the world of evil, but don't clean my filthy mouth, please. Don't clean my filthy mind, because I kind of like my life the way it is. I kind of like the way I'm living my life, but go clean up everybody else's horror. I'm not sure we'd want that so much. I think we'd have to give up a lot. And so before you pray prayers regarding God's justice, first be ready to be purged of all the wickedness in your own life. When you look at the injustice in the world and you say, God, do something about that injustice, be prepared, my friends, to allow God to begin working on the injustices in your own heart. Because certainly one of the keys to understanding the stories about God's kingdom is that God's kingdom is not in contrast to earthly kingdoms, but the self-made kingdoms that we all have made and we all have declared that we are the kings and yes certainly right there's this mentality that lies behind all the earthly kingdoms in the world so before we go declaring god's kingdom first be prepared to surrender your own kingdom prepare before you go declaring the life of god first be prepared to allow god to put the sin in your life to death And then be prepared to wait as God's reign and rule grow like a tree within you. These parables about seeds are ultimately about waiting. That's what really Jesus is trying to get at. You know how long it takes for a seed to become something significant? It takes a long time. It takes a really long time, and you have to wait for it. So these parables are ultimately about waiting, right? Rest assured that God knows exactly what the waiting is like. Don't miss the fact that you are not waiting through uncertainty. You are waiting through a promise. 
But while everyone was sleeping, Jesus continued, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Why God is in your kingdom that is being revealed, why is there so much injustice? In this kingdom that you have proclaimed, why is there so much inequality? Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much disloyalty? Well, because I have an enemy. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? I mean, come on. We know what we do to enemies, right? We mount our horses. We pick up our swords. We go to work. We have been oppressed for 600 years. We have not had a Jewish king sit on our throne for 600 years. Let's go to work. You want the kingdom of God to be manifest? Well, let's pick up our swords. Let's go make it happen. Let's reclaim the kingdom. Let's go pull out those weeds. That was the mentality of the servants. Let's make it happen now. We don't want to wait all the, any more time. We've waited long enough. Let's go make it happen now. This is always the tension in Jesus' day. There were always revolutionary groups popping up all over the place ready to go and wage war against the Romans. They were ready for God to act, and if necessary, they were prepared to act on behalf of God. But the point of Jesus telling the story is to help his audience understand that this is not how the true kingdom of God comes about because this is not how God works. No, he answered. Because while you were pulling the weeds, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, right? Righteousness and wickedness, evil and love. Let them grow together until the time of the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. I can't imagine God enjoys the sight of his fields overgrown with weeds. I can't imagine that he, he delights in the fact that his kingdom is overgrown with weeds. But I also can't imagine that he'd enjoy declaring harvest too soon and losing his crops in the process. See, this is a parable about patience. It's a parable about patience. Our patience in the midst of our trials, but more importantly, God's patience. You see, Jesus wanted his audience to know that the kingdom of God was indeed arriving in and through what he was accomplishing. And that it would come fully, not like a bang from a cannon as war is declared, but like a seed growing into a tree. See, some might say that sounds like a cop-out. That the kingdom of God isn't even real because there wouldn't be all this evil in the world. Some might sound that sounds like a cop-out. Yeah, God's delaying his final judgment because, Jesus, you're not actually going to do anything. And we sometimes get confused when we agree with such ideas. You're right? We look at the world and the lack of God's judgment on it, and we think that God must be uncaring and that he must be inept to actually do anything about it. But actually, look at Jesus, right? Look at Jesus. One of the reasons I hope we're all reading through the New Testament is that we can maybe for the first time for many of you, look at Jesus and see his ministry. I mean, obviously you're going to find that it's impossible to think that God doesn't care and that he's not doing anything. God is very active, deeply concerned with battling evil and defeating it on every page and still warning that the final judgment is on its way, right? Ready to overthrow the enemy that's still yet to come. You see, we who live after Good Friday, we who live after Easter... We know that God did act decisively and dramatically. Today, when we long for God to act, we must remember that he has already done so. That is not a cop-out, but it is an anchor in the midst of terrible storms. 
See, we live today as someone not in the dark, right, waiting for someone to appear with a candle. We live today as someone at the break of dawn who is waiting for the brightness of the day. We've already seen our redemption. We're just waiting for the fullness of our redemption to take place. Well, can you imagine perhaps that Jesus' audience was rather deflated from this conversation? They wanted God's kingdom to come immediately. They were experiencing the oppression of the Romans and they had for 600 years. Not the Romans, but a, other, a different power than, than their own people. I mean, we're just supposed to sit here and wait, Jesus? Or there's nothing that we can do but sit here and wait for God's kingdom to grow up like a tree? And, and it's going to grow up along all the horrible atrocities and we just need to be okay with that? I mean, come on, Jesus, put a sword in my hand, right? Give me a purpose. I want to do something. And so, of course, Jesus tells them another story, but before he tells them the story, right, these people are eager to do something. Put a sword in my hand, Jesus. I want to do something. Before he tells them the story, he has to remind them, right? He has to preface it with something else. Again, because the kingdom of God isn't so much against the political kingdoms of our day. The kingdom of God is more so against our own personal self-declared kingdoms that are in opposition to God. So you ask, what can you do? Well, you want a sword in your hand. If you have surrendered your own kingdom, right? If you've purged your heart of that wickedness, you've purged your heart of that injustice, and you died to that sin, then you are prepared to wield that sword. So here you go. Here's another story for you. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted by his field. By the way, if you don't have one of these shirts, you should get one. This is the story that I'm telling you right now, okay? They're available in the back. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. So take God's kingdom. Take God's reign, his rule, his governance over your life. Take his guidance and his law and go plant it in your context. If your reign is marked by selfishness, God's reign then is marked by love. It's marked by giving away what I declare is rightfully mine because I see someone in need. It means looking at the world's needs and seeing what I can do to meet them. It's, it's coming across someone who is hurting and doing what I can do to heal them. It's coming across someone who is in lacking and in, in doing what I can do to supply them. Go take the love of God and his guidance and his influence and his love in your life and go plant it in your context. Get messy, get sacrificial, get ugly with the way you do this. Go to work tomorrow and allow God's reign to govern the way that you speak to your coworkers and interact with your coworkers. And allow God's love to, to govern the way you serve your family. It's not warm and fluffy kind of love that we're talking about. It is the ugly, sacrificial love of God. Take that. Take that reign. Take his rule. Take his guidance. Take his governance of your life and go plant it in your context. Go sow that love in your context. That is the sword that I put in your hand, Jesus would tell his disciples. That's the task I have given you. You see a need? Meet the need. See the need, meet the need. That's the sword I've put in your hand. That is the kingdom of God being manifest within your community. See the need, meet the need. Don't ask about the conditions. 
Don't justify your way out of it saying, you know what, ah, uh, yeah, that guy looked like he didn't deserve my generosity. Everybody, always, love. Plant the kingdom of God within your context. And you might think, well, you know, just loving someone on the street or loving someone that I see, you know, that seems a little insignificant. Well, though it is the smallest of all seeds, right, the kingdom of God, that act of love, that act of God's reign, not my reign, not my selfishness, but God's love, Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. You might think that it's significant, but I tell you, one act of love, one honest and actual declaration of God's kingdom having arrived through you. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that all of the world is going to flock to God's kingdom and the beauty of it. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to sing one final song together. To reflect on this for just one quick more minute. I don't know about you guys, I, need, I needed this message this morning. I, I did because I, it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to get frustrated. It's so easy to get down when, in fact, your timetable isn't producing what you want in life, right? We have these expectations of how things ought to go as you try to live within God's kingdom, and it's just it's a slow, arduous process sometimes. Be patient, please. Have you guys ever experienced the love of God do something profound in someone's life? It did something profound in your life, I bet. For those of you who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, it's done something very profound in your life. Someone loved you to the extent of inviting you in to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone loved you to the extent of inviting you to a place like this. It was an act of love. It might have seemed significant at the time. It may have seemed meaningless at the time. But didn't it grow in you a little bit? And maybe that's all it is for you right now. Maybe it's just grown a little bit. Maybe the seed has been planted in you and it's just a little shrub now. And you're waiting for the time when it overwhelms everything within you. But my friends, be patient. Be patient as that seed grows up alongside the dichotomy that is your life. And continue to invest in the kingdom of God because one of the great things about allowing the, the tree that is within you to continue to grow is that it needs to be watered, it needs to be nourished, it needs to be taken care of. And so the more you love on people, guess what? The greater your tree is going to grow. The more you give yourself away, the more you meet the needs of the people within your community, guess what? the greater your tree is going to grow, the greater that tree is going to overwhelm the anger, the impatience, the callousness, the apathy. The more you choose to invest in God's kingdom and allow God's kingdom to be scattered and sowed within your context, the more all of that stuff that is in you that keeps you back is going to be expelled from you. And that is my prayer for us. That is my prayer for this community, it's certainly my prayer for me that it will continue to grow within me. My prayer is that as the kingdom of God is sown in you, that it may feel like a little seed, but it would continue to grow and overwhelm the self-made, selfish kingdoms that we all sit within. And that it would then begin to produce fruit. And then you would take that fruit and you would sow it out into the world, that is, you would multiply the love of God in your own life. Can we do that together? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a seed in a field.
And though it was the smallest of all seeds, it grew into something magnificent, and all of the world saw its beauty, and all of the world came running. I hope that can be true of us at Restoration Church. And let us be a people who are waiting patiently as we pray and we work with God to make it happen.